Mind Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. We're here. Uh, we've got some fun stuff to get into this week, but first, um, a brief programming note. Uh, we're going to wrap what we're calling Season 1 after these next two episodes. Uh, we'll be taking a break um, until the new year, and we'll be using that time to plan out some new concepts for episodes and hopefully line up a few more guests. Um, I think I can speak for Bob when I say that we're proud of what we've done for the first 20 or so episodes, and we'll have some good stuff for you in 2021. Proud of most of them. Okay. Most most works. Most, most is good. <laughs> so today we have another guest. Um, our guest is the author of the collection, The Life of the Party is Harder to Find Until You're the Last One Around. We've read his work on the show before. He is an old friend who frequently gives notes on my work for free, which is a high-tier level of friendship for writers. He is the immensely talented Adrian Sobel. Adrian, welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here, man. And thank you for uh, saying the entire title of the book is a mouthful. (laughs) It is. It is a full, full lengthy sentence, but I'm I'm into it. It feels like a an album from 2006 or something. Well. Spoiler alert, it's actually a lyric that I hijacked from uh, a now-defunct Chicago punk band, The Saps. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. I have been wondering about this. Okay. Yeah. it. I can't remember. I think the song was Coup de Gras. It's, I'd have to look back up the lyrics, but it's definitely um, it's something that, that hung around with me and I was just like thinking about I think that song was also about just being completely like out of place and out of joint and just being a mess. And I was like, that feels right. Yeah. <laughs> that is the mood. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the mood of the collection. Um, yeah. We, uh, you and I were talking a little bit well, months ago now um, about, about the book. And um, you mentioned that there's a sort of narrative structure to it over the course of the text. And uh, you used a phrase that's really stuck with me, a, a slow motion, nervous breakdown. <laughs> Uh, which I really loved. What I wanted to ask you about is, um, I know that you're a, a fiction writer as well as a poet. Um, how much, if at all, did multimodal techniques play into how you put the manuscript together as you were writing it? <laughs> uh, man, all the, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I Honestly, the whole thing was a blur now it's been years i'd like most of it became like the book which started as my mfa thesis like went through so many changes before it got to the final edited version that became the the published version and it like it had like strings of narrative that I was thinking about when I was writing it, but it never felt coherent in, it was like thematically coherent, but not mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't know. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a, like a one unit. It just felt like a Frankenstein creature built of all <laughs> these feelings. And like, the creature itself was just destroying everything I loved. So I kept having to hack away at it and it finally felt 
eventually. Like after I got a bunch of rejections on it the first round, I was like, okay, I need to keep changing it. I need to keep changing. It. I need to find what the heart of this is because I don't think I think it's too wild and overgrown. Sure. So okay, so you didn't start out with like a necessarily the idea of I'm gonna write this sort of narrative and verse of this one speaker, but it just kind of ended up that way just by the pure whittling it down kind of process kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, the right way to say it. It was like, it's mostly for me, I found like, as I keep writing and even when I write stories, I think the way that I build things is sculpting rather than mm-hmm. like blazing the trail I think sure. I'm whittling into the final form rather than like knowing where I'm going and just like running at it. I just need like, I need to keep hacking away until there's <laughs> like whatever's left is that, that, that I want. And a lot of the time, like I, there's nothing like I just take that marble block and then it's just dust and there's nothing there. <laughs> sure, and like, sure. <laughs> So hacking away at this Frankenstein of feelings until there's nothing left there. Um, Are you able to turn the dust into something else, or do you just eventually sometimes lose the entire thing? Uh, I've lost a lot um, of things. (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) There, uh, no, there's a a lot of it gets recycled in other in future projects and often it's just like a line or an image and just to build from there. But uh, there were poems. There was like, there used to be like a four, five page poem in the manuscript called at war with the weather, which I tried so long to get it to work. And I just like every time that I went and like, rewrote it and rewrote it and like cut it down. Like I cut it down to a page and was like, this isn't working. So I built it back up to like three and a half and that wasn't working and just had to toss it. I don't think there's anything in there worth saving at this point. Like I've spent five years, six (laughs) years with it. And I think it's just like, there's one or two lines maybe I'll find a place for, but I don't even think about it really anymore. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, that is tough to admit on a four or five page poem. Yeah. I feel that very intensely of I know that of like wrestling with the same poem and then just eventually being like, maybe it's just like not gonna work. But I think like you're saying too, of that like the recycling that comes back is like even just a line or two always like really excites me if I can find where it came from event, you know, like and I'm rarely ever intentionally looking through old stuff. But I, I do think there's something really satisfying about opening up an old draft and being like, ah, these two lines did show up somewhere. They they were worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Five years of anguish for those two lines. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is the way it works, I think. Like so much that the projects that I'm working on now are built out of like just scraps that I've recycled and re rediscovered. Right. And just being like, yeah. well, they don't work inside these poems. Maybe they're just poems on their own. Mm-hmm. And that's the yeah, other thing I've go. discovered is like the beauty of the micro poem. Mm. And nobody yeah. nobody wants them, but I love them. And <laughs> I guess that's what Twitter is for. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's a better use of Twitter than most people use it for, though. <laughs> 
I don't want to harp on it too long, but that, that concept of the micro poem and whether anybody wants it is really interesting to me. Because I get what you're saying of, you know, I, I don't think you can submit a two-line poem to many places and have that interested. But, like, I'd rather have your micro poem than the entirety of, like, Instagram poetry. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there must be a space. <laughs> Maybe some uh, William Blake style wood carvings. <laughs> That's what I need to get back to. <laughs> Etch the poem somewhere. <laughs> just find me a big tree and I'll just start carving them into the bark. <laughs> Head out to a forest preserve somewhere. <laughs> how different, knowing that it came from and started, how different do you think the final book is from the MFA manuscript that it theoretically started with. It's it's pretty different. I think there okay. was a good the poems that survived from the original uh, thesis were like say maybe a third, a little over okay. a third. Okay. And then they just kept getting replaced. Um, right. Cuz I I think the the thing I learned was as I was editing it and building it was that I have, I have my hobby horses and I have my obsessions and like every time I'd write a new poem, I could go, well, this actually like kind of piggybacks off the image that I had here and they're working in concert together. And so like I can start, fusing those and being like, well, this one's stronger than the one I already had. And they're kind of playing with the same ideas. And I got it. Like the clarity is here, but not in the, the one that's in there. So I'm going to toss that one, replace it. And that's sort of, and I kept like putting those aside and maybe thinking like something will come of those. And like, that's became another manuscript. And then like, so I just like I have I work in piles now. Right. Sure. It's just like, sure. like I'm gonna take this one out, I'm gonna put it over here, and we'll see what what if anything grows. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I feel like I know a number of them, but I mean just yeah. Uh to give uh to illustrate this a little bit, how many how many piles or theoretical manuscripts do you think there are right now? Uh the there's <laughs> one completed that okay. you've, that I know you've read, right? And there's a second one that I know that I'm like somewhere in the middle of, and then there's like two or three random possible <laughs> chapbooks, and then like a third full like manuscript. That's I don't know. It just it sounds. Sounds like a lot. And again, none of those might ever right. find a home anywhere. <laughs> right, right. It's so many poems. Yeah. I get it's it, like, though. Yeah. It's like you work in projects. To, yeah, and it's what I, well, the thing that I discovered out of the, the thesis was that I had one of, the, one of the poems in the thesis, it was like a long poem, became the second completed manuscript. And... Hmm though they kind of like had similar ideas, the tones were different and 
it was like, oh, this is this actually needs to be on its own. This needs to be its own story and its own like complete world outside of like whatever echoes it may have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it needs to be independent of those. And so that was good to like walk into that one and build it and just kind of see where that one took me without feeling restrained or constrained by the world of the life of the party. Cause that one, like that one had its own kind of like ideas and like motifs that I became pushed, started pushing forward for and being like, okay, this, you know, this needs to be a little jokey. This needs to be a little sardonic and sad. Whereas the other work was like trying to be more nightmarish and um, haunting. Sure. In a way that like life of the party, like maybe gestures towards, but never fully inhabits. Mm -hmm. Sure. And you know, you almost get like an addition by subtraction thing there too, because like you have, you, you recognize that that poem that becomes your second manuscript needs to inhabit its own world like that. And then that frees up more space for, to fully develop the life of the party world, you know? So yeah, it benefit, it theoretically benefits both works, I would assume. Yeah. I think uh, like having, knowing that they can exist simultaneously without needing each other is a good discovery and just being like it it expands possibilities of both yeah i like that yeah so you're saying i should start several other manuscripts right yes (laughs) (laughs) to help the one (laughs) it's the the million monkeys monkeys a typewriter theorem just (laughs) write a million manuscripts and one of them will Resemble a monkey writing on a typewriter. There you go. <laughs> that's, how, that's how that saying goes. One of them will resemble a monkey writing on a typewriter. <laughs> uh, Bob, did you want to get into the uh, textual questions that you had from the book? Um, we could do that. Actually, this does kind of um, go with kind of where you were talking about with like the tone of Life of the Party. Um, and we've at least partially had this conversation in person before, but there is a series of poems in this book uh, that are called, I have this joke I've been working on. And you've talked about, I I think we've kind of touched on both, but you know, this uh, slow moving, uh, what was the phrase we use? Slow slow motion nervous breakdown. Um, That energy is definitely in the book, but I would also call a lot of your writing funny. And when I encounter a poet that I think is funny, I'm really curious about that relationship that kind of the poems gesture to of like, what is the relationship between jokes and poetry um, for you? Sure. Uh, I, I always thought about it's, I mean, I didn't always think this way, but at some point it hit me. I think listening to comedians talk about crafting jokes Mm. and thinking about like finding the right word in order to make a punchline work and just uh, like started to sing to me in a, in, in a way that I don't think I ever thought about before. And at some point it, it dawned on me that poems are jokes that they essentially work in a, in the similar mechanism of 
or can, don't always, but can work in the similar mechanism of setting up uh, an idea, escalating it, subverting it, allowing it mm-hmm. to turn on the audience um, to create some sort of epiphany and building that relationship and just kind of working that mechanic. And that really opened a lot of possibilities for me because at the while I was getting my MFA, I started thinking this way and I started reading a lot of Steve Martin's like written work, um, mm-hmm. like his very early like anti-narrative, anti-poem works, like uh, Cruel Shoes, I think was the, the book that he put out. And just like listening to his comedy bits and reading his his memoir all started making me think about like poems that are like the way jokes can be funny by not being funny and the way that you can subvert audience expectation within just a phrase. And I was like, well, what is that? Like what that's a line break and that's just like mm-hmm. the image and that's that's the Volta. Like all of that is possible within the poem but I didn't necessarily feel like I was reading that kind of work all the time right and I didn't and like as much as like the work that I read that that was built out of um, really heavy scholarship and really heavy thinking about art and consumerism and race and like poems that dealt with like these heavy heavy topics that were like art with a capital a sure i was always longing for a release valve from that yeah and so i kind of wanted a poem that wanted to find a way to make a poem that didn't have to deal with the weight of the world Hmm. and in some ways like felt limited by my own ability to speak about heavier things and just like feeling a kind of like deep imposter syndrome of just being like, I don't, I don't know enough to write about certain things, but you know what I can do? I can make a joke about how sad I am. (laughs) And like, and like, that's, I think there's not only can there be beauty in that, but I think that, uh, arrives at a kind of humanity and, and work that like, it's a different way to approach that, that kind of art. And I just, so that's, and it drew me to that because it felt like an exit from hmm. my own preoccupations with things and just even scholarship on it on its own, because I mean, like grad school's hard and you read a lot of stuff and it makes your brain and soul hurt in a number of different ways. And, like, the thing that I always found connected to is, like, oh, I can make people laugh. I can make work that makes people laugh. And, like, that's when I feel, like, the brightest and the highest that I can be. As And, a, like, I want to recreate that. And that's, like, what keeps pushing me to do it. Sure. That's Damn. that's really interesting. That's, I, that's I like that answer. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't expect Steve Martin to come up in this podcast. This is... <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, we talk a lot about that exact thing on, uh, maybe not necessarily in the frame of, uh, the context of making a joke, but yeah, like that, like slight turn of phrase that, or, or, or name of the podcast line breaks. 
um, that, uh, that subvert expectations. And that's like, yeah, that's what, uh, those little twists of the screw is what Ellie yeah. scratches, scratches an itch for Bob and me. <laughs> <laughs> I really like how, cause I have, I have heard a similar conversation, similar line of thought, um, about the relationship between poems and jokes. And you said something pretty early on there. Um, you turned in a couple different directions that excited me, but uh, you know, of, um, that there are like similar mechanisms within how a joke works and how a poem works, um, you know, and that kind of one of the, at least for me, like exciting moments of that is like thinking about, yeah, how can thinking about the way a joke works help me write a poem, you know, and like, and how a poem could let that similar operation like lead to a different effect than maybe laughter that I want to think about more. I don't have anything intelligent to say about it. <laughs> but, I mean, just, and, like, like thinking about you as a Twitter person, um, you have, a, a, you have the, the long-running bit of, um, uh, of band name suggestion for blank, um, you know, and every one of those is, is wordplay, you know, like, uh, it's happening there. To me, that helps make a really easy leap to how that might work in a poem. I'm just rambling now. I had a direction, but it's, it's definitely gone. I mean, that's oh, just like... Hope oh, you go. You go. Oh, I was just going to say, that's uh, that's just... I mean, that's the poetic form, the joke setup. I mean, jokes have concrete, like, just the, you know, three three guys walk into a bar, etc. <laughs> like, that is just a setup, and it's just a way to build a joke. It's, a, it's like a right. familiar entry into something to build something else in the same way. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, it's a sonnet. Oh, it's a pantoum. Like you're just working with the tools to create something else. Um, so it, it's, it's a, I think, it, I think of it just as a building block and an entryway and like, like and using it sideways just to say like, okay, well, I'm going to write a poem. Three guys walk into a bar. Where does that pump? <laughs> like, if I think of that, not as a joke set up, but as a poem set up, like where does right. it go? Right. That actually, <laughs> really helps me. Um, so a number of years ago, uh, despite being completely unqualified, I, I was teaching a humor writing class. I pulled from a million friends for sources. And one thing someone sent me was like literally like Seinfeld trying to explain how he writes his jokes. And I watched this with my students and we all like walked away from this video and said like, I don't get it still. Like that was not helpful in the slightest. And just as you're saying this, I'm like, oh, maybe that's how other people feel when they like go like, how do you write a poem? You know? Oh yeah. I can't really explain it. You know, <laughs> like just do it. That's a solid point. Yeah, I can't remember who on Twitter today was just talking about like, it's a poem when you decide it's a poem. And yeah, I guess some people know that for comedy, and some people know that for poetry. I don't know. <laughs> some people, I guess, know it for both. Right, and that's I think that's what like can get you back to like where is that middle space between what is a joke and what is constitutes a, a poem. And you think if you watch those like old Steve Martin stand up specials where he's basically shit posting on stage uh, <laughs> and people love it. And like the jokes themselves aren't traditional and they don't have the, you know, setup escalation punchline always going for them. Some of them are like, intentionally bad and like all of the mechanisms that he's employing to make an unfunny joke funny is all contextualized in what we understand that space to be so he's 
And I think the poem can be the same thing. It can, like, we expect it to be one thing, and the second it switches on you, that's where the poetry happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's where the poetry happens. That's where, that's where the poetry happens. <laughs> um, I think I'll use that as a segue for the other question, Chris, because I, I do think you've kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, but as I was flipping through the book, Adrian, um, I came across, um, I hadn't thought about it since I last read it, but I really love the poem Garbage Poetry, playing on uh, that phrase of what we call garbage, how we describe things. And oh, I got really cringy in this question. I don't want to trash anyone or anything. <laughs> caveat, but, caveat, caveat. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just, I, I, do, I think of you as a critical reader and that you're not someone who I think like is quick to just like get excited about trends because they're happening. And so kind of like just thinking of you as a reader, like um, what are, what are some things that like maybe you think you'd like to see some more of in poetry? Um, or if you want to go down the trash lane, what are some things you'd like to see maybe less of? More of or less of? Uh, yeah. It's hard to say. I, I find that my, I, there's so, it's hard to say what I want more of. Um, okay. If I want more of anything, it's less of it. And I, what I mean by that is uh, I always make this joke about, how albums need to be no longer than 40 minutes long and novels shouldn't be any longer than 200 pages. I agree with those statements, by the way. Hell's yes to both. (laughs) And I think in the thing that I... Yeah. (laughs) And I say, like, literary magazines should publish no more than seven people per issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that I find a lot when somebody's like, Oh, here's our new issue. And here's like 40 people that we've published. (laughs) And it's like, I can't digest all that. And I want to, I want to sit and process all that work, but uh, it's, it's difficult. And it's, and I feel like I'm never giving the right attention to it. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's my own failing for not having the time, but also there's just no time. And so I think, I want a deeper editorial voice, I guess, and mm-hmm. letting and finding that space where like more people can be more pronounced, but also like I um, like I hate the kind of idea of the fame and and like celebrity model, and like right. I, in some ways like the fewer people you have, the that causes that problem where you're just raising yep, sure. up only a few. And so it's uh, the problem of abundance is kind of a good problem to have, and there's not really a solution for it. But I kind of feel you on that. Yeah. Because I I deeply agree with you. Um, I won't name any names, but I I can think of a couple journals that every time it comes out, I go like, oh, let's give it a click. And it just like this table of contents is the most overwhelming thing. Um, Yeah. And you're not going to get all my attention, um, or no one's going to get my attention, frankly. Um, yeah, that happens to me a lot too. Hard to process, and I, I think you're totally right about how kind of complicated the model has become, or the, just the fact that there maybe isn't a model anymore. Um, you know, yeah. there's a difference between publishing 20 people in a magazine that comes to your house and you can read it on the toilet, um, as opposed to publishing 20 people on a cell phone that you're trying to read on the toilet. 
I don't think the latter works. Blah. Yes, the problem but, of abundance is definitely exacerbated by the internet, but like. But the, I like that lots of people are getting published. Like that's, that's right. Exciting. Yeah, you don't want to cut access to anybody, but yeah, um, I like your idea of literary magazines should have smaller spaces and then like you know, or smaller author counts and then more space for those authors to shine would be, mm-hmm. you know, would and be it's really also really hot too. We need more yeah. of that. And it's hard because I feel like a lot of the, the magazines have editorial stances and like mm-hmm. they have things that they're going for and what they themselves will say like, oh, here's what we, we want. But at the same time, every time I read... A journal, I kind of don't. I'm, it's, and this is a good thing. I think like you don't see the the why two pieces were selected for the same issue, and mm-hmm. you're like, these are wildly different works, and that in itself shows that you're reading a lot, that you're getting a lot of different people who right. are writing in different styles. But it also says to me like, what is it that you like, and what is it that you want to publish? And I'm and I'm always thinking about that because I, it's when I want to publish, I want to be like I want to find the place that will want my voice or my mm-hmm. kind of work, right? And it's and it's often hard because there's so much out there, and like people will say like, oh, we want experimental poetry, and then you read the work, and the the experiment is like whatever the experiment was in that piece doesn't feel necessarily always feel like super extreme and you're like, well, does that mean that like, am I experimenting enough for this journal? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I just have to throw it in into their submittable and see what they want. And if they want it, then they want it. But it's, it is a kind of hard numbers game. And that, that's like, that's what I, I think what it concerns me is, is like, I want an editorial statement beyond like, Oh, I want poems that like steal my shoes and then throw them to the moon. And, like, I don't know, yeah. do, do, do my poems do that? Or do they just, like, throw them to Venus? Like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah, those submission guidelines enough? always drive me crazy, where it's just, like, we want stuff that grabs us, but not too forcefully. And then, <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah, just, yeah, vague, vague editorial statements are so frustrating. Right. I mean, I know that, you know, if you want to get published in a literary journal, read the journal and decide if, 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 if your work fits. But like when the editorial statement is like deliberately kind of obtuse like that, like grab your shoes and throw it to the moon or whatever, it's, it's frustrating. So uh, before we get too off the rails, uh, trashing literary magazines, uh, all of which we love, we're not talking about your literary magazine. Uh, if you're listening, uh, you know who you are. We're not talking about yours. <laughs> Adrian, did you uh, bring a poem? Yeah. Um, I brought, a James Tate poem. Very exciting around these parts. Yeah, is a 94 collection, Worshipful Company of Fletchers, which is also a mouthful of a book title. <laughs> so this is a, just go ahead and read it. Yeah, go, go yeah, for it. So this, yeah, this is a poem called Loyalty. This is the hardest part. When I came back to life, I was a good family dog and not too friendly to strangers. I got a $35 raise in salary, and through the pea soup fogs, I drove the general and introduced him at rallies. I had a 
totalitarian approach and was a massive boost to his popularity. I did my best to reduce the number of people. The local bourgeoisie did not exist. One of them was a mystic and walked right over me as if I were a bed of hot coals. This is par for the course. I will be employing sundry golf metaphors henceforth because a dog, best friend and chief advisor to the general, should. While dining with the general, I said, let's play the back nine in a sacred rage. Let's tee off the foredoomed community and putt ourselves thunderously touching bottom. He drank it all in, rugged and dusky. I think I know what he was thinking. He held his automatic to my little head and recited a poem about my many weaknesses for which I loved him so. Yeah, James Tate, man. Oh, Always man. pulls you in a million different directions. Yes. <laughs> I guess the question we should lead asking you about the poem is, um, why this poem? What is, what is uh, you know, James Tate in general, or what does this poem in particular do for you? It does a lot for me. Yeah, I, I had, I read this book... Uh, over, I think it was in September the first time. I picked it up just kind of on a whim. I have his selected poems, which I think end with, like, in 89, the last thing he published. Mm-hmm. So this is, like, the next book. So I, I want to see where he was going. Because I've read, his, like, his most recent works, and I kind of, like, this is the period where I hadn't, like, the 90s. That right. was just a blank um, so I picked this book up and I started reading it. And I think this was the one that like, this was still like, so September was like height of the election, but not quite the, you know, the boiling point. And it was just like, this just reads like a Trump poem. <laughs> it really and, does. <laughs> and like the, like the words that like there's rallies, there's golfing, there's this dog imagery, like all of that you'll find in a Trump Twitter feed. And I was just like, that's, this is a 2020 poem. And the only thing I can ever imagine Trump doing with a dog is putting an automatic to its head and talking about its faults. <laughs> and so like, there, like I love that about it. And I, the thing that, that I what I like about Tate's poetry and and the way that it sort of moves between like even like a flash piece, like flash fiction piece to just moving like through the poem and just like blurring the line between because the a lot of his work, especially his later work, is so narratively placed and they they're just so focused on these characters and the way that they interact and they talk with one another. And I like, I love that because it, it gives me a kind of like own world with its own rules that gets built over li- from line to line. Right. Sure. And a thing that he's really great at, which is like ties back to what you said about pulling you in a million different ways. He always throws details, which seem to suggest a bigger world and never and just drops it and just like here's <laughs> yeah. here's a thing and just like that's really interesting but he's like not not gonna even bother like following that thread he's just gonna follow his own thread like it's the like, mystic who walks over the dog like a pile of hot coals or whatever and just never yeah. brought up again right so it's like it's the details you'd find 
like that if this were a film, some studio guy would be like, we need a backstory on that guy. Give me like a trilogy about the mystic. Right. And you just like pull, just like you don't need that backstory, but you can imagine it. And that's enough that builds the world for you. Yeah. And I think he does that all the time. Like all his poems seem to have those details and they're so like simple. And there's the way that he weaves, I think Americana and also the, the kind of explosions of the idiom. So like, well, like we think about like, what does loyalty mean? And like, is like, what is like a dog is loyal. And like, at first you start like, Oh, I guess this is a poem about a dog. Like I came back to life. I was a good family dog. And then like, suddenly he's giving speeches and riding around with the general and talking to him. And so like, is he actually, is he literally a dog or is he just playing the dog, playing the good servant and just like play. And so Tate is like in this world and he's playing with that idiom and just with that idea of what, what does that mean? And like, how far can we stretch it? Yeah. yeah, And as you're saying that it occurs to me that like, I I don't want to obsess over this, but I, I, it occurred to me after the election uh, when someone was like, Biden's dogs have a Twitter feed. And like, it's almost like been a requirement for an American president to have dogs for like, as long as we've been alive and Trump doesn't have a dog. And I think that kind of, those kind of optics things are stupid, but um, the fact that I can't picture Donald Trump owning a dog or (laughs) even like interacting with one, like says a lot about his personality, I feel like, but he does use the word dog to describe people he disrespects all the time. And in this poem, it's, I was a good family dog and not too friendly to strangers. I got a $35 raise in salary and through the pea soup fogs, I drove the general and introduced him at rallies. Now I've never known a dog with a salary before. (laughs) Um, So it, it, it kind of plays with that. um, Like you said, blowing up the idioms, it kind of plays with that idea of like, uh, you know, prostrating yourself before the general. There's sometimes good money in that. Um, you know, cause he, he gets, he gets a raise for it. And, uh, but yeah, we're never explicitly told, is it like a literal dog or a, um, or a, or a dog in terms of someone who's just, uh, committed to total servitude, you know, and, uh, um, <laughs> you get at, I, I think Adrian, you put it much better than I would have. Um, but I feel similarly or. I think I feel maybe more strongly in a negative direction than you do, but I, I, I dislike a lot of Tate's later work, um, or I like it less. And I, I think you're right that he gets into a more kind of narrow vision with like the little story and little world of, of whatever's happening in the poem. And yeah, like it, it edges up so closely flash fiction, whatever you want to call it. Um, but this one to me, like it feels like, I want to play the exercise where we like copy and paste this and make it a prose poem and look at how different it is in prose versus the line breaks. Cause it is these big movements from line to line, you know, of, of taking an idea, playing with a little bit, jumping pretty far that I find so unpredictable and exciting. And I swear to God, they're just lost in his prose poems. <laughs> I, I, I I don't have them here with me to like do a, a bigger analysis of this, but part of me kind of wants to. Um, 
this kicks ass. This is really good, and I feel a lot better about it than the last time I was reading some tape poems. <laughs> yeah, and this collection, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've picked it up, um, is mostly prose poems. Am I right, Adrian? Is that right? Uh, they're actually pretty linear. Oh, Those, they are? Okay. I don't know if okay. there's not... It's not been like a year a since I picked it up. Poem. Okay. Yeah. Well... I mean, there's I some long, sh- long lines, but they're mostly, yeah. mostly linear. Okay. I think it was shortly. I've got the Wikipedia page open right now. I think it was shortly after this one where he started turning almost entirely to prose poems. Um, this one won the National Book Award, and then he could do whatever the hell he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. I think the generous way to think, because I, I like those longer poems. They're, they're a little tougher to read because I think the lines are so long and they're so dense that it, it's, it's intimidating, I think, on the page to see like a poem where the line just goes from margin to margin. And it's like... I agree with that. And it's like two and a half pages. And you're like, man, right. that, that is a lot of language. Even if it's like very prosaic and even like simple, like it's not necessarily making you work in the same way another poem might through like figurative language and like broken and hybrid kind of hybridization of ideas and just like in words. And you're like, where, where are you going? Where are you taking me? It's sort of like you're in the narrative, but it's always kind of, like it's visually, I think more, I don't know, more difficult to experience it than it is to hear it. Yeah. I think re- like hearing those yeah. red and just like having them wash over you is a little bit more palatable than than seeing them. But I think what what happens in those longer poems is that they they expand what a poem can be, and I think that's what I find exciting about them is being like, well, like. You read it and you're like, well, that was just a story. And like weird stuff happened, but there wasn't like from line to line, you never felt like a leap or a turn. But like in some ways, the whole thing is the turn. And you're, you, and that's, that's exciting just like to see, see it push that boundary. And like I, I read, I read some like later poem, like take poems to people. And they're, and that, that is the thing is like, that, that's a poem. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Why not? <laughs> if he wants it to, if he wants to call it a poem, he'll call it a poem. Call it a poem. <laughs> it's like we were talking a couple months ago, like with the American sonnet. It was like, well, it's fourteen lines, and they called it a sonnet, so gonna do it. it's a sonnet now. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe I, I think you are hitting at uh, something for me. Of I, I wonder the experience of hearing some of his longer poems out loud. Um, and obviously he can't read them anymore. Um, if you ever heard a recording of him, he was a great fucking reader. Um, I love telling jokes. Um, rest in peace. That's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like the kind of guy who would love telling jokes. I need to <laughs> look up some of those readings. Yeah, and there's, and I think that's what draws me to his work is that that kind of playfulness and that kind of levity that even occurs in the face of totalitarianism. Right. Like that yeah. Here's a poem about like a fascist general who is just running around the country golfing and <laughs> like, there's still, 
there's still jokes to be made in that space and not even like at the expense of the general, but just to find like humor in the absurdity mm-hmm. and even in the idea. Like, so I think about the, the way that he says, um, like I will be employing sundry golf metaphors henceforth because a dog best friend and chief advisor to the general should. And just like, like why? And like, but that again is also pushing that idea of just like what, like now he's become explicit about the language he's using and yeah. saying like, we're going to use golf metaphors because the loyal person should. And that I think also plays into that same idea of Americana and idioms and just kind of the language you use and why that language itself is absurd. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I like that a lot. And especially like, because with American idioms, there's still, there are still like class structures that you have to move through and code switching that you have to move through. And um, yeah, to explicitly use golf metaphors, you are talking to a certain class of person when you're doing that, as opposed to, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, baseball <laughs> metaphors or cooking metaphors or something like that. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. Like, you know, you're sort of picturing, uh, I'm not picturing uh, Nebraska when I read this poem. I'm picturing the villages in Florida, you know. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. It's it's such a Florida poem. <laughs> it's a very Florida <laughs> poem. <laughs> <laughs> the question that I always have when I read this is, does he shoot the dog? He's got the gun to his head. He's reciting right. a poem. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a little ambiguous there at the end. Um, I, that for which I loved him so does seem to be an accepting of his fate. Right. But yeah, it's the it's the inception ending. It's you know. the hardest part, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right before he's gonna end it for you. <laughs> and like, so I've been like, I've been reading this and like close reading it, and I've been thinking about like, so the it ends with the scene of the general holding an automatic to his head and it begins with him coming back to life as a dog. And I think about it, like it's in some ways like an infinite loop where he gets murdered and comes back as the dog and has to be loyal. And is just so loyal that he'll continuously return to the subservient position. Right. I like that reading of it. Like no matter how many times he's shot in the head, he's going to be back at the, feet of the general in his next life <laughs> like a like, like a, that's really dark and that's yeah. real sad but i just can't help but laughing at that and <laughs> that's 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 my favorite space to be in like that is my favorite kind of joke to tell well it's, it's like, uh, oh man <laughs> yeah it's groundhog day but you're subservient to a fascist general every day for the rest of your life as opposed to uh you know learning the piano and building snowmen or whatever. <laughs> and, and maybe a dog. And maybe a dog. And maybe a dog. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's pivot to a quick NBA question. Um, um, <laughs> since, since we're, since we've gotten to the point where we're talking about a, a, a hybrid movie of air Bud and groundhog day in the context of a James Tate poem, I think we've reached that point. <laughs> So Adrian, I know you're um, a Bulls fan, but I wanted to um, ask you about like 
if there's a certain point when you know you became a Bulls fan? Because if I'm not mistaken, you moved to the States when you were six years old. Is that right? Yeah. So was the, that's like, given how old we all are, that would be like right around the time of the second three-peat. Was it a uh, childhood thing or was it a later in life thing where you got into the Bulls? And then also, who's your favorite Bull of all time? So we can all argue about that. <laughs> I think uh, favorite bull of all time, Benny. Um, a, <laughs> Solid pick. I think uh, I can't remember when I started. I remember watching the second three-peat, like following it along pretty closely. But I feel like it was in my periphery. So I was pretty young. So it was probably 93 or 93 or 94 when I was like really kind of became aware of Mm -hmm. the Bulls. I mean, I was, I, when I moved to the States, it was, we were living in Chicago. So like all the sports teams were around and I was probably aware of them, but I don't really remember following any of them. And I, so probably at the tail end, of Jordan's retirement, probably, where I kind of became really into it. I think probably Space Jam had a lot to do with it. I think if you were to indoctrinate a little kid into a basketball team, having, like, cartoon characters do the thing, sell you on it, that's yeah. a really good way to go. It's brilliant. Because um, yeah. <laughs> I, I had the the Space Jam cassette soundtrack and ran that to the ground. All-time great soundtrack. Come on, yeah. The Quad City DJs. Quad City DJs, man. Yeah. Never left the Quad Cities, but got so big. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think it was then I started following that season, and then after after the end of the three-peat and the team got disbanded, I, was, I kind of lost... Hope I kind of paid attention to the opening of the next season and then just was like, oh, okay. I kind of knew. It was a hopeless few years for the, for a while. The magic was over. Um, but I think, yeah, so that's probably where where that started. I mean, my to be real honest about, like, my, my favorite bull, uh, probably still Jordan, but if I, like, if you have to set him aside because I think that's the obvious answer. Right. Uh, Joe Keep Noah. There you go. There we go. We, we're in agreement. Um. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a Ronnie Brewer guy, but you know, what are you gonna do? I got a soft spot for Ronnie Brewer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adrian, this yeah. has been a lot of fun. Um, man, yeah, we could really go for hours, and everything that you said has been so just threads we could pull out. We'll have to have you back on. Uh, sometime soon but uh, yeah thank you for being here man yeah thanks for having me it was fun yeah Yeah. awesome well yeah um, yeah that's been an episode Um, our music is produced by Brendan Johnson our art is done by A.M. Strickland and uh, we will talk to you guys next week or the week after depending on programming and uh, (laughs) then we'll talk to you in 2021 Um, so yeah Talk to you then.